I don't know about you, but I, I wanted to shout when we're singing those songs this morning. Oh, my. Uh, what a great way to get our hearts settled on what is important in life. And we are here today not for any other reason but to worship the one true living God. Amen? That's why we're here. That's why this room is packed today. Because we want to lift up our voices to the one true living God. We want to center our attention on God's word. Be instructed by it. But not just to gain more information, but to put it into our lives and put it into our hearts and live it out in a dying world. Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We are going to embark on one of the greatest passages in the Bible. Now, all Scripture is inspired by God, right? It's all profitable, right? Uh, we believe in verbal plenary inspiration, which means that we believe that, that every word in the Bible is inspired and every word in the Bible is equally inspired. So we believe that this is completely and totally inspired by God. And yet, you'll see exactly what I mean when we move into chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. The title for the message was a no-brainer today. And you'll see as we move through the text, there are five profound words in this text instructive for us as to those who would desire to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus will say to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. Most of you by now know that I grew up in Springfield, Illinois. Springfield, Illinois is affectionately called the land of Lincoln. And if you're a historian or just a fan of Abraham Lincoln, there is no better place in the world to learn about our 16th president than in my hometown. And if you were ever to visit, you would find the majestic tomb of President Lincoln, which is located in Oak Ridge Cemetery. It's on the north end of Springfield, just down the street from where I went to high school. My mom was actually buried in eyeshot of President Lincoln's tomb. Springfield's full of sights to see and to visit. If you want to learn more about one of our greatest presidents, sites like Lincoln's home. It's the only home that Abraham Lincoln ever owned. You could also visit his former law office or the old state capitol where he served in the Illinois legislature. There's New Salem State Park, which is really an, a reenactment of the village where young Abraham Lincoln lived for six of his formative years. And of course, the creme de la creme is the, is the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum and Library, which is a world-class facility that houses everything you'd ever want to know about the former president. And so growing up in Springfield, I learned a lot about Abraham Lincoln and his family. I've been to all of those historic sites dozens and dozens of times. And while I know a lot about Abraham Lincoln, I obviously never met him. I know a lot about him, but I don't know him in an experiential, relational, and personal way. And I think 
that would sum up the importance of what I referred to last week when we looked at verses 23 through 25 as this, this bridge passage that helps us to understand what true saving faith really is. And that, again, is at the heart of the passage that we'll consider today. And so if we look at Scripture as sort of building blocks, as a writer writes, and this was written by John, the apostle, uh, it's, he builds upon what he has already instructed us and what we already have been given as the revelation of Jesus Christ, as the perfect God-man. Creator, God, came to earth as a babe in a manger to die in the place of sinners, but he didn't stay in the grave. He's alive today as we sang earlier. That bridge passage, 23 through 25 of chapter 2, helps us as we move into chapter 3 today. And so like you, I know a lot of people who know a lot about Jesus, but unfortunately they do not know him in an intimate, personal way. They just possess information. They know about him, but they don't have a relationship with him. This morning, we're going to look at an encounter between a man by the name of Nicodemus and Jesus, the God-man. It may be one of the most instructive passages in all the Bible as to what must occur in the life of any man, woman, and child if they are to be saved. Again, Jesus sums it up in five words. You must be born again. You must be born again again. Well, because this encounter with Nicodemus is such an important text to understand, I've decided to break it up into two passages. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 together, and then next week we'll consider verses 9 through 21. So our attention today is on verses 1 through 8. So let's read those together, and then we're going to break it down and come to an understanding as to the importance of this encounter that Jesus has with this man by the name of Nicodemus. Verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Wow. As we look at these eight verses this morning in greater detail, we're going to find four key components of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Four key components of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. So if you're taking notes, the first key component is what we find here in verses 1 through 3, and it's the introduction. The introduction. Look at verse 1. There 
was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless, uh, unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So again, verses 23 through 25 that we considered last week naturally flows into this very interesting encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus. And so let me just say, we have the luxury of having the Bible broken down in chapters and verses, and there's paragraph breaks, and there's all kinds of things in our translation, in our English translation of the Bible. When John wrote this, he wrote it straight. Like, there were no breaks, there were no uh, divisions, there, there were no uh, uh, verses or, or chapters. And so, verses 23 through 25 naturally flows into this encounter that Nicodemus has with Jesus. And so, what do we learn here about Nicodemus and, and this engagement with Jesus? Well, we, first we learn here that Nicodemus was a man who was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a sect within Judaism that were known for their almost militant following of the Mosaic law. They were religious law keepers who took great pride in adhering to every jot and tittle of the law, even adding new laws that would make them seem more spiritual. We find in Scripture that the Pharisees were very concerned about how people viewed them. So they would stand on the street corners and they would pray these eloquent prayers. They would gather in the synagogues whenever others would be there to see them. They would make sure that they had an audience when they would give of their finances. They were very much about appearances and were often very critical of others who didn't see things exactly the way that they did. Ultimately, they were all about themselves. Full of pride and cold religious practice. Their lives were void of grace. And this is a reminder that religion is empty. Religion is empty. I, I took a world religions course one time. You would be amazed at how many religions there are in the world. I mean, incalculable. There are so many religions in the world. The Pharisees were religious, but they were void of grace. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23, we find that Jesus had some really, really harsh words for these kinds of cold, religious people that we understand to be the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus reserved his harshest words for religious people. So if you're in Matthew chapter 23, look at verse 23. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And what does he say next? Hypocrites, right? Hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Interesting. The word hypocrites here was a word that everyone knew very well. It meant stage actor. 
The Pharisees were religious actors, and they were really good at it. They were really good at it to the point that they had fooled themselves and they have fooled other people as people may consider them the elite of those who might be religious. But look down in verses 27 and 28. Jesus would go on to speak more about the Pharisees, these stage actors. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, stage actors, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to people, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so I mentioned earlier about the, the cemetery that President Lincoln, uh, his tomb is and where my mother was buried my grandfather my grandmother was buried in the same cemetery it's a huge cemetery on the north end of springfield and so when i go back to visit back to to the area i always drive out to the cemetery not to see lincoln's tomb but to see my mom's tomb and to see my grandma and my grandpa's tomb and sometimes i'll get there and uh, you can almost barely even read the writing on the front of the tomb because you know with the weather and you know the weather there is similar to our weather here all the four seasons and so you know there's all kinds of things dirt and so on that gets on the tomb, and you can barely sometimes even read uh, what the tomb says so when jesus is talking about the pharisees he's comparing them to tombs so he's basically saying that the pharisees have a really clean tomb They have a really clean tomb. Somebody is going out to the cemetery and they're whitewashing all these tombs. So you can read what's on the tombstone. But you know what's in the grave? Bones, dead men's bones. And so he's saying, you're you're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. You look beautiful. People drive by and say, what a beautiful tombstone. But inside... They're full of dead men's bones in all uncleanness. So you too, he says, outwardly appear righteous to people, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In other words, as we saw last week, Jesus knows the heart of every man. Jesus knows the heart of Nicodemus when he meets him. This encounter does not take Jesus by surprise. He knows everything about the guy and he knows his heart. The Pharisees were all about external compliance, but inside their hearts were as hard as a rock, as cold as an ice cube. The Pharisees were the poster boys for what Jesus hated. They were the epitome of legalism, and Jesus hates legalism. And he didn't just hate legalism then, but he hates it now. And legalism is the idea that people can somehow earn merit from God through performance or law-keeping. Now, I want to unravel this for a moment because some of this may be confusing. First, there is a difference between a conviction and extra-biblical legalism. A conviction is a strong personal belief that's based on the Word of God. And so if the Bible speaks to something, we should develop an unwavering conviction to follow the Scriptures no matter what. Right? Living out our convictions is a part 
of the Christian life. It's the practical part of the Christian life. Later, here in the Gospel of John, in chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we are to keep the commandments of God, right? We are to keep the commandments that God has given to us in his word. That is an evidence of a true believer in Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose, and he says it again in 1 John, that's the whole purpose of the book of 1 John. I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. The same author that wrote this gospel wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. And so he wants to be clear, as the people of God, we are to keep the commandments of God. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. And so we are to keep the commandments of God. So what's the difference here between the Pharisees and people that are true Christians who have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, it's obvious here that Jesus is trying to make a point, and we're going to get to the point in a moment, but he's saying that anything apart from a person who is born again falls empty. It falls short. Unless you are born again, it doesn't matter the stuff you do. I mean, the comparison here of whitewashed tombs with these Pharisees, these hypocrites, is profound. And it is illustrative of what their hearts were really like. They looked good on the outside, but their hearts were cold and dark. As a Christian, the Word of God informs our conscience. It's a light to our path, right? That's what Psalm 119.105 says. The Word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Convictions should never be based on our subjective feelings, but on the objective truth of God's Word. And so here's an example of a conviction that I established as a young pastor, and it's this, that I will only marry two believers. I'll only marry two believers. Ephesians 5 is very instructive that a marriage between one man and one woman is illustrative of the relationship that Jesus has with his church, right? And so for me, as I read that passage, I'm not in the wedding business. If you want to get married, I get calls all the time, all the time from people in the community. Can we use your facility and would you marry us? Well, I just tell them on the front end that um, I'm not in the wedding business. Our church is not in the wedding business. And so if you are a part of our church and you are a true believer in Christ and you're marrying another believer in Christ, then yes, I will marry you. But outside of that, I'm out. I'm out. I have no interest. So I will not marry two unbelievers. I won't marry a believer and an unbeliever. Only two believers because of what Ephesians 5 says. So that's a conviction that I've developed. And I know other pastors will marry two unbelievers. And I'm thinking to myself, my, I have no desire to bring together two people with cold, dead hearts that are not honoring the Lord with their marriage. They have no desire to honor the Lord with their marriage. They're not even believers. And so that is a conviction based on the objective truth of God's Word. And so our convictions are essentially the application part of God's Word. Legalism's different. 
Legalism is completely different. It's adding to the Word of God. Legalism is the establishment of a set of rules and regulations in hopes of bringing about one's salvation or one's spiritual standing before God. Legalism is opposed to grace. It's opposed to grace. Legalism is oftentimes making a preference a rule and denigrating others who don't hold to your preference. It's the elevation of rules that add to the Bible. So there's a clear distinction between a true conviction that a believer might have based upon Scripture and these extra-biblical rules that people like to hold on to that make them seem spiritual. Jesus is not impressed by that. I know a guy who had a lot of rules. I mean, this guy, I'm not kidding you. I sat down with him one time, and I was talking to him, and he was in our church a long time ago, and I said, where'd you come up with the rules? Where'd you get your rules? Did someone write them out for you? Did you make them up? Like, where did you get all these rules? None of these things are in the Bible. Well, (laughs) we had a very interesting conversation. One of his rules was he wouldn't go to Pizza Hut because they served alcohol. But as I got to know this guy, he was heavy into pornography. This guy was into all kinds of weird, twisted stuff, but he wouldn't go to Pizza Hut because they served alcohol. You see, you see what comes out of legalism? I'm telling you, legalism messes people up. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you grew up in a legalistic background. A lot of people that grew up, I grew up in a legalistic background too. A lot of people that grew up in a legalistic background are messed up. They're messed up because they've been told their whole life that this is godly. You do these kinds of things. God is pleased with that. No, he's not. God's not concerned about the external. He's concerned about the internal and what the internal produces, which is good on the outside to be seen by him, but not the other way around. What we do on the outside does not affect our hearts. What we do from the inside out, that's what God loves and is concerned about. The purpose of the law was to lead us to Christ Galatians 3.24, not to keep us bound to law-keeping. The Christian life is about grace. Romans 14.1 says, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. The Apostle Paul warns us of legalism in Colossians 2, beginning with verse 20, when he says this, since you died with Christ, to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, do not go to Pizza Hut. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and human teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence, Paul says. Legalists may appear to be righteous and spiritual, but legalism is all about outward performance rather than inward change. 
Legalists not only lack grace, but they possess a critical spirit and they're judgmental of others. So all that to say, Nicodemus is a legalistic Pharisee with a cold, dead soul. And Jesus knows it. And so second here, it needs to be said, no one has ever been saved by keeping the law. This is a misunderstanding, even in some of our circles, that there was somehow one way of salvation in the Old Testament, and now there's a new way of salvation in the New Testament. Salvation has always been, from the beginning, by grace, through faith, in what God has revealed to man. And so they are held accountable for what God has revealed to them, and salvation is by grace, through faith, not the keeping of of the law. New Testament saints look back on his death. The Old Testament saints look forward to the sacrificial death of Christ, but it's all on the basis of Jesus and what he provided to sinners on the cross of Calvary. Now, not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee we see here, but it says he was a ruler of the Jews, which meant that he was also a member of the powerful Sanhedrin, This was the ruling body of the Jews, almost like the Supreme Court of Israel. This man, Nicodemus, was a powerful, influential man. The Sanhedrin was comprised of 71 ruling judges. Later, at the end of Jesus' life on the earth, it was the Sanhedrin, you remember, who had Jesus arrested for blasphemy and the the claim that he was the king of the Jews. So the Sanhedrin had political, religious, and judicial power. Their hub was Jerusalem. Their meetings were in the temple. But it's hard not to notice here that this encounter happens at night. Did you catch that? This encounter happens at night. And so you wonder if there's any significance to that. And it's hard to know for sure, but most biblical scholars speculate that because of Nicodemus' position, he wouldn't want others to see him with Jesus, and so he uses the cover of night to seek him out. Now, it appears here that Nicodemus was very respectful of Jesus. He calls him rabbi, which means teacher. And so Nicodemus is acknowledging that there's something special, there's something different about Jesus, even saying that we know that you have come from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. But he uses the word we there, if you notice, to indicate that he wasn't the only one who saw that Jesus was special and unique. And so Jesus looks right into the heart of Nicodemus looks right into his heart, jumps to the chase and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, no one will take part in the future kingdom of Israel unless they're born again. And that's what they were all looking for, the future kingdom. This term born again means to be born from above. It means to be born from above. In other words, no one can have a right relationship with God unless there has been spiritual transformation or spiritual heart change, which is the exclusive work of the Holy Spirit. The term that best describes the new birth is regeneration. So this brings us to verse 4 and the second component of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. It's the interrogation. The interrogation. Look at verse 4. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So Nicodemus is obviously confused by what Jesus has just said. So he asks Jesus two questions. He says, first, how can a man be born when he's old? And then secondly, he says, he he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So you see that obviously at this time of this encounter, Nicodemus is very inquisitive, but he's unregenerate. He has no spiritual understanding proven by the fact that he's thinking solely in the physical realm rather than the spiritual realm. And this leads to verses 5 through 7 and the third component of this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, and it's the interpretation. The interpretation. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And so here Jesus provides the interpretation as to what he meant when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be regenerated. You must be born from above, he's saying. And so Jesus begins his interpretation by saying, one must be born of water and the Spirit if he wants to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, we know, we understand what it means to be born of the Spirit, right? But, but what does he mean when he says that one must be born of water? This is an age-old question that theologians have wrestled with for uh, millennia. There's a few popular interpretation of what he means by that, but, um, and I'm going to share a few of those, and then I'll tell you where I land with this. First, uh, some have postulated that Jesus must be speaking of water baptism here. In other words, unless a man is physically baptized in water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But, and catch this, I thought this was clever, This interpretation holds no water (laughs) because Scripture is clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so water baptism, the Scriptures teach, is to take place after salvation, right? It's not a part of our salvation. Water baptism is a public identification with Jesus Christ. Second, some have tried to explain this mention of water here as the amniotic fluid in the womb. In other words, one must undergo physical birth and spiritual birth to enter the kingdom of God. But that doesn't seem to fit here either because there's equal weight given here in the text as to these two births. So why even mention physical birth? It's obvious, right? It's obvious that he's already born physically, so I don't think it's it. I don't think it's that. Instead, I think what Jesus is referring to here when he uses the word water is it's referring to spiritual cleansing. Not physical water, but he seems to be using water as a metaphor, a figure of speech. So look again in the text here at the parallels in verse 3 and 5. So whatever it means to be born again in verse 3, Jesus equates that to being born of water and the Spirit in verse 5. 
So I think the key in understanding what he means is to remember who Jesus is dealing with. Remember, Nicodemus is schooled in the Old Testament, an Old Testament scholar. And he would know that water was often used in the Old Testament as a metaphor for spiritual cleansing or renewal. So let me show you this. If you'd like to turn, you can. It's Ezekiel 36. If you want to turn back there, Ezekiel 36. If not, I'll read it to you. So Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, helps us to understand what Jesus is saying here and what Nicodemus would understand when Jesus said what he said. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful to follow my ordinances. So God is promising through the prophet Ezekiel, 600 years prior to the birth of Jesus, that a time is coming, a time is coming when there will be a transformative new beginning. And that new beginning will be characterized by a spiritual cleansing that's symbolized by water. The powerful gift of the Spirit will transform the hearts of people. And that's what's required for people to enter the kingdom of God. There must be a new birth, regeneration by the Spirit of God. Jesus says, you must be born again. I remember back when the Lord gripped my heart. I was much more like Nicodemus. I knew all the Old Testament stories. I grew up in the church. I could tell you about Moses and Daniel and Joseph, Noah, Jonah. I could tell you all about those guys. I could tell you even about passages of Scripture that seem to talk in the Old Testament about the coming Jesus. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 14, Psalm 22. I, 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 I was... I was maybe not as schooled as Nicodemus, but I was somewhat schooled in the Old Testament Scriptures. My heart was unregenerate. I had never been born again. It wasn't until August the 10th, 1979, where I was at a church camp in Low Point, Illinois, just an hour north of Springfield, that the gospel of Jesus Christ gripped my heart. The Holy Spirit of God convicted me of my sin like never before. Never before. Something miraculous happened within me that day. I remember it. I remember it. Something dramatically changed in my life. The Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin and appropriated the gospel of Jesus Christ, the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ that I had heard a bunch of times in my life. And he changed me. I was regenerated by the Spirit of God. 
new birth, I was born again. And, and I remember that night like it was yesterday. And I've told you the story, I think, before. I, you know, at the, the, the pinnacle of the camp, you know, at the end of the, of the camp week, you know, there was this campfire, and the guys were always encouraged to invite a pretty girl to the campfire. It was just the thing to do. And I had invited what I thought was the prettiest girl in the camp. She was all excited about going with me, and I was all excited about going with her. And I was born again. I mean, there was this transformation. It was like the chains of religiosity fell off. And all I wanted to do was to go back to my bunk and get my Bible out. I had been born again. There was a huge change in my priorities from that moment on. From that moment on, the priority wasn't church. It wasn't youth group. It wasn't any number of things. My priority changed dramatically when I was born again. My priority became Jesus Christ. You must be born again. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 helps us to grasp what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, speaking to Christians at the church at Ephesus, those who have been born again. Here's what Paul said. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Oh, I can relate. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. In other words, we were, we were deserving of the wrath of God because of our sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I went from a law keeper, a rule keeper, a pretty good kid. I didn't do any of the seven deadly sins. Cold, hard heart. Jesus turned my heart of stone into a heart of flesh. The Spirit of God indwelt me and empowered me, and everything about me changed from the inside out. People could have and should have and probably would have said, he's a good Christian boy. Because you know why? They'd see me at church whenever the doors were open. They would see me doing things with other church kids. They would see all this external stuff, but my heart was as cold as an ice cube until that day. When the Holy Spirit of God quickened my heart, I became a Christian, a follower of Christ, not just as my Savior, but as my Lord, and all of my priorities changed at that moment. Something dramatic had happened. And so I had to tell that pretty girl, I'm sorry, I can't go with you to the campfire. I'm not even going to the campfire. I got to go back and spend time with my Savior. 
You know, Paul said the same thing to those who had been born again in the church at Colossae in Colossians 2.13. And you were dead in your trespasses and, and sins and the circumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him, having forgive us, forgiven us of all of our sins. Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, Pharisees, but in accordance with his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. He appropriates the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Romans 1, 16 and 17. He does that in the hearts of those who will trust, one day trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Mercy, grace, not performance. Mercy, grace, it's what God did, not what we do. Not what we do. So all this brings us then to this fourth component in this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, and it is the illustration. The illustration, look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So I didn't think I could say it any better than what John MacArthur said. And so here's what he said about verse 8. Jesus' point is that just as the wind cannot be controlled or understood by human beings, but its effects can be witnessed, so also it is with the Holy Spirit. He cannot be controlled or understood, but the proof of his work is apparent Where the Spirit works, there is undeniable and unmistakable evidence, and I am a living testament to that. One of our men shared Saturday morning at our men's breakfast, and he gave his testimony, and very similar to what I just shared. Like when God got a hold of him, he grew up religious. He told us of that, but it wasn't until the Holy Spirit really knocked him down, convicted him of his sin, regenerated his heart, that he became born again. If you want to see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must recognize your sin. As the Spirit of God convicts you of your sin, you must recognize your sinful condition before a holy God. And that's just the start. But you must turn from your sins to the one true living God. You must place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for salvation. And this is how the Holy Spirit does his work. He convicts us of sin. He regenerates our heart. He gives us the grace and the faith to believe. We become a Christian. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. My favorite quote from President Lincoln was about the subject of truth. So you got to realize, if you go to the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum and Library, there are hundreds of quotes by President Lincoln. And of course, growing up there, I mean, in history class, we, we spent a lot of time 
centering our attention on the words of Abraham Lincoln. So I heard a lot of quotes by him, but, but these are the ones that I kind of like the best. He once asked an audience, how many legs does a dog have if you count the tail as a leg? So you get that? How many legs does a dog have if you count the tail as a leg? And when they all answered five, Lincoln corrected them and said, no, the answer is four. Just because you call a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. He went on to say, in regard to this great book, meaning the Bible, I have but to say that it is the best gift that God has given to man. I don't know if Lincoln was a Christian, but his conclusion's accurate. We find the way of eternal life in the pages of this book. You must be born again. We'll consider more about this absolute imperative next week when we examine verses 9 through 21. But I just want to say as we close today, you are now accountable before God. You have been told the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone here today, including myself, we're all accountable before God. We will stay here all day if you want to go down the road to understand more fully how you can be born again. This is what our church is based upon, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the expositional preaching of His Word. It's the Holy Spirit that imparts the Scriptures to us. He inspired these words. And may He use them in all of our hearts today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, oh, what a start to chapter 3. What a start to our thankfulness for what You've done in most of our hearts here today. You have regenerated us. You, through Your Spirit, have given us new birth. You have uh, awakened our uh, cold hearts. You have replaced our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. You have done it all by Your grace and Your mercy. And Lord, I pray today that as Your Gospel has gone forth into the ears of all of us who are here today, that there may be some who are here today that are thinking, hmm, my testimony is a little bit like Pastor Dave's. My testimony is a little bit like the fellow that shared yesterday in our men's prayer breakfast. Got some knowledge, religious, but I've never been born again. And so Lord, I pray that your gospel would penetrate the hearts of everyone here today. And your spirit would do what only your spirit can do. And we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.